National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning. You've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. We're going to spend a little time today talking about strategic issues in the maritime security arena. We're also going to talk about operational theaters and even a little about maritime tactics. Education for all members of the military services is generally well supported by senior leaders and by Congress. There are even organizations in the services that focus on critical thinking, on writing, and even on holding conferences and symposiums on issues connected to military strategy, operations, and tactics. With us today is a guest who can enlighten us on one of the oldest professional discussion forums in the military services and what that periodical does to foster critical thinking in the maritime arena. Bill Hamlet is the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine and the Executive Vice President for Periodicals and Membership at the U.S. Naval Institute. First published in 1874, Proceedings is one of the oldest continuously published magazines in the United States, and it is recognized as the home for independent debate for issues impacting the U.S. Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, as well for national and global security issues. Bill retired from the U.S. Navy in 2016 as a captain after 29 years as a Naval Intelligence Officer. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, the U.S. Naval War College, the Joint Forces Staff College, and the National Defense University. During his career, he served as the Intelligence Officer for an F.A. 18 squadron, a Navy SEAL team, a carrier air wing, and a carrier strike group. On September 11, 2001, he was in the Pentagon and helped organize the Joint Staff's immediate reaction to the terrorist attack. From 2004 to 2006, he served as the U.S. Naval Attaché to Russia. And from 2008 to 2012, then-Captain Hamlet worked at the U.S. Pacific Command's Joint Intelligence Operations Center in Pearl Harbor, where he led a team of more than 100 intelligence analysts who were focused on the Chinese military, its strategy, operations, tactics, and modernization. For his final active duty tour, he worked in the National Counterterrorism Center, where he focused on whole-of-government counterterrorism planning for the Middle East. During his Navy career, Bill wrote often for Proceedings Magazine and served on the editorial board and board of directors of the U.S. Naval Institute from 1993 to 1997. Bill Hamlet, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on the show. I've been really looking forward to this. And thanks also to you for being a member of the Naval Institute. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's Wednesday morning, uh, 10 o'clock your time. Uh, where, where, where are you sitting right now? I'm sitting in Annapolis in the, the studio that we have here in the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center, uh, a, a facility that we just built and completed a year ago here in Annapolis on the grounds of the Naval Academy. Uh, Bill, there are a ton of questions I want to ask you today, so we, we'd better get started. We only have an hour. Uh, can you t please tell our listeners about the U.S. Naval Institute? What What is the U.S. Naval Institute? Yeah, so the official, you know, the title U.S. Naval Institute makes a lot of people think that we're part of the government, that we're a, a government organization. We are not. We are a uh, 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan, apolitical, educational uh, nonprofit. So our job is to um, to educate members of the sea services. We provide a lot of uh, content, both books, uh, magazines, and also conferences and events that educate the public and educate people who are professionals in the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. Uh, we've, we were 
founded here in Annapolis uh, on the grounds of the Naval Academy in 1873. And so that's why we're located in Annapolis. Uh, our mission is to provide an independent forum for those who dare to read, think, speak, and write to advance the professional, literary, and scientific understanding of sea power and other issues critical to global security. And, and, and uh, how, how large of an organization is the U.S. Naval Institute? Yeah, we're just 65 people full-time staff, um, you know, staff personnel. And that, you know, so we, we publish about 70 or 80 books a year. We publish two magazines, Proceedings, as you mentioned, and Naval History. Uh, we, we have a news team. We have three full-time news reporters and, and a number of stringers around the world who report the news, what's happening in the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, what's happening with the DOD budget, the Navy budget, Department of the Navy budget, uh, what's happening globally. So, you know, when the Moskva the Russian cruiser was sunk in the Black Sea. That was a, a major news story for our news team. Uh, we do conferences and events, about 12 or 13 events a year. Some of them are very big. We do a big conference in San Diego uh, called West every year. Uh, Seven or 8,000 people. We have uh, dozens of speakers and panelists and discussions. We get the service chiefs of the CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Commandant of the Coast Guard are always there at West. Uh, and that's a that's a very big event. And, and some of our, our smaller events are, you know, a one on one discussion, what we call a maritime security dialogue, something we do in, in combination with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in, in Washington, D.C. We might get the commandant of the Marine Corps to come and our our CEO will will do an interview style thing for an hour, an hour and a half. So big events to small events, um, uh, a lot of them here uh, at the Naval Academy as well. So as a publisher, uh, how important is the U.S. Naval Institute in, in the broader publishing industry uh, as far as fostering discussion about historical matters linked to conflict? I mean, how many books uh, do you release a year? Is it 80? Uh, you do more? And, and, and in, the, in the broader publishing industry, is that a lot for a publishing house or is that kind of average? Yeah, so our, our book publishing arm is called the Naval Institute Press. It's been around since uh, just before the turn of the last century. So we were uh, the, the Naval Institute Press was established in in the 1890s. It is one of the founding members of the University Press organization. So all the you know so you know the, the Harvard University Press, University of Kansas Press, all the university presses in the country, the Naval Institute Press was one of the first and founding members of that organization. Uh, so we're, we're kind of the academic or the university press for the United States Navy and the Naval Academy. Uh, we, we do about 70 or 80 books a year. A lot of them are foundational textbooks for people in the Navy, the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard. Examples are, um, you know, the Watch Officer's Guide, the Division Officer's Guide, Dutton's Guide to Navigation. Also, for every new um, uh, seaman recruit going to boot camp up at Great Lakes. Every every new person coming in as an enlisted member of the Navy gets a copy of the Blue Jackets manual, and they have for almost 120 years now. I think we're on the 16th or 17th edition of the Blue Jackets manual, right? So so the Naval Institute touches uh, every single new sailor, you know, in the United States Navy. Uh, same thing for the for the Marine Corps, and to a lesser extent, just because it started later, the United States Coast Guard. Um, but uh, so those are the, the foundational knowledge kind of books that we publish. We also publish history books. Uh, so one of the most, uh, I think, impactful ones of the last couple of years uh, is, is a book called Learning War. It's by a guy named Trent Hone. It was published in 2017. It's on the Chief of Naval Operations reading list. 
Trent looks back at the at the very important period in, in our naval history, uh, 1898. So that's the Spanish-American War up through and including World War II. Hmm. What how did the United States Navy educate itself, train itself, adapt? How did it in, incorporate new technologies, new propulsion systems, gunnery, you know, firing systems? How did it uh, war game and and uh, and think about war? and educate itself for war, prepare its leaders for war. And then during, especially during World War II, how did it adapt to an enemy that was that was uh, adapting constantly, right? And, and, and showing us the Japanese Navy particularly, uh, but also the German Navy, the U-boat threat in, in, uh, in the Atlantic. How did our Navy adapt to that uh, as war was happening and as we were learning those hard lessons and then feed that back into the education and training so that our you know, the next ships out and the next officers out, you know, we're ready to to dominate in con- conflict across the Pacific or across the Atlantic. So those are, you know, some of the kinds of books we publish. We also publish novels from time to time, most famously uh, Hunt for Red October by that's Tom right. Clancy. Yeah, the Naval right. the Naval Institute Press published that in 1984. We, you know, Clancy had sent his um, his uh, draft book to about seven or eight different publishers. They all rejected it. Uh, that was before, you know, the military techno thriller kind of had its had its start. Um, and the Naval Institute said, hey, we can we can publish this. And so we did. Unfortunately, we didn't get his, his latter books. Right. <laughs> we got his first book uh, and we got some of the you know, some of the uh, royalties to the movie as well. Um, so that was a, a boon for the Naval Institute back in the 1980s. But we've published a number of other. Uh, you know, very good military novels. And then the one thing that might surprise your your listeners is that we publish graphic novels. So about mm. four or five years ago, we got into the graphic novel business because we realized that, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, don't have time or, or don't take the time or don't want to read, uh, you know, a, a hundred thousand word book, uh, but they like the graphic novel format, right? So most famously, in the last couple of years, there's a wonderful book by a, a naval historian named James Hornfisher. Mm. He wrote a book called Last Stand of the K- Tin Can Sailors, World War II uh, book that's phenomenal. He gave us permission to turn that into a graphic novel, which we did and published last year. And so it's, a, it's just an incredible graphic novel. The, the, the images in it are so, um, so dense and beautiful. That it's it's uh, you know it's, some people say well you know it's not as good as I'd say it's it's just a different way of taking in content right uh, so the graphic novel is something that we're new to uh, but it's a very popular uh, format for a lot of readers these days so we decided to go there as well and, and Bill what about the periodical proceedings I mentioned that in the in the intro uh, what is that magazine and and what, what role does it play in fostering a healthy debate about maritime security and, and other national merit, national security issues. So um, I'll start by just telling a little bit about the, you know, sort of the foundation story of the Naval Institute, how we got started. So it's 1873 uh, here in the Naval Acad- at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. So we're eight years after the end of the Civil War. And as the United States often does after a major war, we, we delude ourselves into thinking, well, we're, that was so expensive and so costly in terms of blood and treasure uh, and so hard that we're never going to go to war again. Right. So, you know, defense budgets get cut. Uh, the number of people, you know, serving on active duty is drawn down. There's this massive post-war drawdown. The Navy in 1873 is out of money. 
Uh, it's out of ideas. If you want to get promoted, you have to wait for somebody up the lineal list, either either to die or to retire. Right. And so it's just it's, it's in this total quagmire. And the superintendent of the Naval Academy at that time was a guy named John Warden, Rear Admiral John Warden. He's important, not just because he's the superintendent of the academy, but 12 years prior in 1861, he was the commanding officer of the USS Monitor. So a lot of your listeners will remember Monitor Merrimack or Monitor Virginia, as the ship was actually called the CSS Virginia, the Clash of the Ironclads, Battle of Hampton Roads, early 18, early, early Civil War, these two ironclad ships, steam powered, you know, heavily gunned. Uh, meet in combat. The the tactically it's a draw, but strategically and technologically it's like the advent of new warfare, new naval warfare, right? So Warden's the CEO of the Monitor in 1861. 1873, fast forward, the US Navy's not buying monitors. We're not building steamships. We're we're going back to sail power because that's what we can afford. Around the world, other navies are building advanced navies. They're building coal-fired, you know, steam-powered ships. They're building turreted guns, all this stuff, right? So Warden and a group of officers here at the Naval Academy feeling very, very frustrated. And so they 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 get together this group of, you know, we, we like to call them the insurgents. Uh, <laughs> and they and they they found this thing called the U.S. Naval Institute. At first, it's 15 of them. And Warden looks around the room and says, all right, next next month, you're going to present a paper on education. You're going to do one on on gunnery tactics. You're going to do one on strategy. You're going to do one on on enlisted manning. Right. So a year later, 1874, they've got this stack of papers and they published the first issue of the the, the proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute. That's how we get the the, the title, the proceedings. OK, Um it's the it's the primary primary membership premium for members of the Naval Institute. So we don't call our readers subscribers. We call them members. It's written by people in the sea services. Right. Okay. So yep. it is a yeah. So uh, I don't write it. My staff doesn't write it. Uh, we don't go out to professional authors to write it. It it is all of our articles. Everything that we publish is written by people in the sea services some by people who were in the sea services. So we get a, a few, you know, fair amount of retired folks, occasionally pieces by civilians. But most of our authors are junior officers in the Navy, active duty, some enlisted, some senior officers as well. But the, you know, the heart and soul of it is junior officers, um, mid-grade officers, people who are in the service, you know, who are experiencing it, who are thinking about um, how to make it better, right? Uh, one of the things I'm really proud of is that in our heritage, um, a lot of people who became very famous naval admirals and Marine Corps generals wrote for proceedings. But what a lot of folks don't know is that people like Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz wrote for proceedings starting when he was Lieutenant Chester Nimitz, right? <laughs> Fleet Admiral Ernest J. King was was Lieutenant Ernest J. King in 1909 when he won our general prize essay contest. Lieutenant Hyman Rickover, later the father of the nuclear Navy. Um, General John Lejeune was the first Marine commandant who wrote for proceedings. He wrote for us in the 1920s. And then later on, you know, so uh, guys that you and I would know because of our active duty time. So, you know, Admiral Winnefeld, mm -hmm. Admiral Stavridis, General Allen, folks like that, you know, started writing when they were midshipmen. Midshipman Winnefeld, when he was a, a, a NROTC cadet, at uh, Georgia Tech, wrote his first proceedings article. Ensign Jim Stavridis, 
you know, and then he kept writing all the way through his entire career. So I'm always wondering, you know, the junior officers that we're that we're working with today, that we're editing today, that we're publishing today, you know, which one of them are the future two, three, four stars in the Navy, Marine Corps or Coast Guard? And, and Bill, I understand that at proceedings, you set aside each month of the year uh, for each issue for some sort of a focus. Uh, I think the last month was for, was for the Coast Guard. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So we have um, not. We, so we do 12 issues of the print magazine per year. So it's a monthly magazine. We have online on online only content that we publish in between the you know the first of each month, um, and we've got those about eight of the issues are have hard you know are, are plugged in hard themes each each year right so January is surface navy, um, uh, May is our international navies, uh, August is coast guard, September is naval aviation, uh, October is submarines. November is Marine Corps, et cetera, right? Um, but we have a broad topics in every issue. So there's something for everyone. So if, you, if you're if you a Marine and you pick up the Coast Guard issue, you, you know, you, you're not, you're not <laughs> going to be looking too far to find something that will apply to you, whether it's leadership, maybe a technology topic, uh, maybe it's something about, you know, current operations, what's going on with China, but there's something for everybody in, in every issue. Uh, for our audience, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Bill Hamlet, who's the editor-in-chief for the Maritime Service-centric monthly magazine Proceedings from the U.S. Naval Institute. Uh, Bill, you mentioned a long list of uh, specialty months at Proceedings, months uh, in which special specific topics in the maritime security arena are covered extensively. I'd like to put you on the spot to talk a bit about the role the debates in the pages of Proceedings serve uh, in pushing uh, the policy strategy match in the maritime arena. How important a platform is proceedings in spurring that very healthy debate about high-level policy and strategy concepts when it comes to the Navy, the Marine Corps, or the Coast Guard, and even the merchant Marine? Well, I'm a little biased, uh, but over <laughs> the years, I can say, you know, proceedings is almost 150 years old. But I can say without much hyperbole that every major change that's been uh, it, that's happened in the Navy, uh, and more recently, the, the Coast Guard and the Marine Corps, has been de debated in our pages, often for years before the change happened, whether it's tactics, leadership, education, training, force structure, technology, personnel, even grand strategy. Um, uh, major issues that are playing out in our pages right now uh, are things that the, you know, the, Marine is, the Marines are constantly talking about, force design 2030, mm -hmm. right, which is um, you know, we've got to redesign the force to be able to uh, deny and deter and fight and win in the Western Pacific against China. So the Marines are out of, you know, 20 years of operations as a second land army in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're focused on the maritime threat, particularly in the Western Pacific. That's going to require a very different force design and force structure. So FD 2030 is, is very much a, an ongoing debate in our pages. Uh, the, the Navy is talking about something called distributed maritime operations. So instead of putting all our eggs in one basket, you know, during your time, my time in the Navy, we, we, we had carrier battle groups. Later, it was called carrier strike groups, where you've got an aircraft carrier, you've got, you know, several ships around that aircraft carrier. You're, you're concentrating your force because we really didn't have a threat that could threaten that force, right? But now, you know, for the Navy and the Marine Corps to steam into the Western Pacific, 
The Chinese have built capabilities that can reach out and touch us uh, from land bases, from land-based missiles uh, and aircraft to a, a, a very rapidly growing and advancing Navy force. And so um, the, the Navy is thinking about having to distribute that force. So the, 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 uh, the units of a carrier strike group, they might be hundreds of miles apart, well over the horizon. Um, but their fires are what we want, their missiles, their, their weaponry is what we want to aggregate at the point of contact with the adversary. But the force itself will be disaggregated, will be distributed. So that's a, that's a topic that's getting a lot of uh, attention. You know, carriers, CVNs, nuclear-powered carriers, the Ford class, which are very expensive, they're very big, they're very capable, but my God, that's a, you know, a multi-billion dollar resource with four thousand plus sailors on board uh, so that's a very lucrative target for the bad guys right so do we build more of those or do we build what we call lightning carriers which are smaller a little less capable but also cheaper with a smaller you know footprint smaller man manpower so that's a debate that's in our pages you know the the indo-pacific or the u.s central command so in other words the middle east versus the indo-pacific um, nuclear force structure. You know, it's been a long time since the United States has really reinvested in the nuclear triad, bombers, strategic missiles, uh, SSBNs, the, the strategic ballistic missile submarines. But that's got to happen. What should that, how, what should it look like, right? How big should it be? What are the, what's the role for that? That Do we need, do we need small nuclear weapons? Um, you know, those, those are some of the debates. Um, and then we, we started something a, about a year and a half ago uh, called the American Sea Power Project, where we've we've reached out to real experts on um, naval power, mil military power, and uh, some historians, and even some people like uh, you know former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman, who was SecNav when when you when I was a JO, uh, and just after after you uh, just before uh, you came in the Navy, um, but we asked him to write like how did you. Um, organize and build the Navy in the 1980s to face the, the Russian Navy, the Soviet Navy threat? And what are the lessons that apply to, to, to today? So uh, just, you know, a, a plethora of issues, technology, leadership, education, strategy, um, you know, force structure, force design, it, it's all in our pages. That's that sounds like uh, there there was a conference, uh, the strategy discussion group in the Washington D.C. area. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yes. Se Secretary Lehman had a was part of a conversation about that. You know, how do we learn those lessons uh, from the Soviet Navy days in the '80s, and including a discussion about the uh, 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, which is really the last time we had major naval engagements at sea. I would imagine that there is a great deal of debate <laughs> just among the staff at proceedings and, and across the probably across the Naval Institute uh, as a whole uh, about these very same issues, these uh, policy strategy match, match issues, et cetera. You know, like what size Navy does the United States need? What kind of mix of ships and submarines and aircraft and even unmanned platforms in the modern day uh, gives the Navy the optimal capabilities needed to deter or defeat a wide range of potential threats? Even the Coast Guard, what missions does U.S. political leadership want them to perform? Is it only missions close to the U.S. shores, or do we need them around the world for a variety of missions? And if that's the case, what's the right mix of ships and aircraft for the Coast Guard? I'll even bounce off you the imperative for a large fleet of U.S.-flagged merchant ships uh, to ensure we can move products and resources around as needed 
regardless of the state affairs uh, state of affairs in any part of the world. Do these debates happen at the Naval Institute and certainly within the staff of proceedings? I mean, how do you guys how do you guys struggle to decide which articles you're going to publish and which ones you aren't going to publish? Yeah, the the debates definitely happen. Um, and, and we read uh, it's literally thousands of articles and essay contest submissions that we get a year. So that's a lot of reading. I read I read everything that comes to us. I'm usually the third reader. So if if Lieutenant John Smith out out in the fleet, you know, has an idea about how to you know take the fight to China in uh, in distributed maritime operations, for example, and writes an article for us, it comes in, um, and one of my uh, you know younger editors will read it, um, do an eval on it, do a synopsis of it, then it goes to uh, a second editor, and then it comes to me. So the three of us will read it. If we like it as a feature article. We send it to our editorial board. So we have a, an editorial board made up of about 10 Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard professionals, E9, so senior enlisted, all the way up to 06, so captain or colonel. Um, and they represent the different tribes. So we've got Marines, we've got aviators, we've got surface warfare, we've got submarines, we've got Coast Guard cuttermen, we've got an information warfare officer, uh, we've got a, a Marine sergeant major. Um, so a, a smattering of all those different uh, flavors of the sea services. And, and then they will read it and say, yeah, we should publish uh, or or not publish or we should publish. But, you know, this is the part of the article where he's a little bit off off target. Um, and, and so they give us some uh, some feedback that helps us in the editing process. But, um, it, you know, my staff and I have a constant debate. We follow the news we're we're, we're reading all these articles. But we don't we don't have a dog in the fight. So that's an interesting, uh, I think, uh, point to make is that we provide an open forum. So, uh, for example, you know, somebody can write and say, in fact, this has happened in our pages in the last you know couple of years. Somebody can write and say, you know, we really shouldn't be building these large Ford class carriers. They're so expensive and they're so um, it's so, so massive uh, that, you know, given the threat that faces us in the Western Pacific from Chinese anti-access weapons, um, perhaps that's not the best dollar, best bang for the buck for the taxpayer dollar. And then somebody else can write, well, no, that's wrong. You know, here's why we should be building Ford class carriers, right? This is exactly, you know, the niche for them, the capability, the, you know, the, the necessity for this, this class of ships. So you can have both, uh, you know, it's thesis antithesis, right? With synthesis in the middle, we have that, uh, we have that discussion happen. The other thing that I really, I'm very proud of uh, about us uh, and, and different, um, different groups of senior Naval leaders sometimes like this and sometimes hate it. Um, but people can write uh, in proceedings and question, you know, the current program of record. Why are we buying what we're buying? Why is our strategy what it is? You know, we need a different strategy. We have a, you know, a, we should be shifting more to the Pacific, more to the Atlantic. Um, we need to be building more unmanned versus manned. Um, what are the technologies we need? How do we integrate them? But we, they can disagree with where the Navy's official policy rests, right? And, and so that's kind of fun. Um, and I, I will tell you right now that the Commandant of the Marine Corps is a big fan of us. So General Berger has written for us every year since he became the Commandant. Um, but he also appreciates the fact that there's a, a lively debate in our pages, that there has been, there, we, we've published things that 
um, that are critical to Force Design 2030. We've published things that are supportive of it. We've published things that, um, you know, uh, take take slightly different perspectives on it and examine it and bring out, you know, nuances. Uh, and some of those are critiques and some of those are ways to make it better. Uh, but but that's you know it's not official policy. In fact, it's uh, and and I often have a lot of army and and air force officers who will tell me, you know, we in our services we've got nothing like this thing that you call proceedings, and right. we publish uh, air force and army folks because because they they also they want to weigh into the debate, um, often not on naval things but on more national security or global you know larger DoD issues. And even the joint environment. I think I've seen some articles. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I'm glad you brought up uh, the Commandant of Marine Corps, General Berger. <laughs> he's been, I, I've, I, for months now, he's been taking uh, face shots from a lot of retired uh, general officers and, and retired colonels in, in the Marine Corps, uh, questioning this uh, this force redesign from the Marine Corps. But uh, General Berger has uh, has not stopped. I mean, he's, he's really con- committed to this force redesign. Uh, to deal with the challenges that we see in the Western Pacific specifically, uh, to move the Marine Corps back to sort of a smaller, lighter footprint, but potentially more lethal in their their combat power. Uh, so that, I mean, that's a great example of the healthy debate, I think, that takes place in proceedings uh, about force structure and force design and uh, application of force uh, in, in conflict. So uh, what about, uh, I, I see that... Uh, Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a fellow Naval Academy grad, uh, she has been holding the CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations, feet to the fire on a Navy force design. Uh, are we seeing plenty of debate in the pages of proceedings on how the U.S. Navy should be designed? Uh, definitely. And that's uh, that's <laughs> part of the American Sea Power Project uh, that we that we uh, instigated. Uh, and and uh, so uh, Representative Luria has spoken at a couple of uh, Naval Institute events, right? So she's uh, she's a frequent uh, speaker uh, for our events. Um, and yeah, you know, she, Naval Academy graduate, 20-something years in the Navy, surface warfare, nuclear power trained. She's incredibly smart, right? Yep. And she's asking very, very difficult challenges, uh, challenging questions. Uh, and I applaud her for it. Um, I will tell you that, uh, you know, the Navy, in, in my view, the Navy is struggling right now for a couple of different reasons, right? Uh, so for listeners who aren't, you know, perhaps um, greatly acquainted with, you know, the Navy, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things that have happened over the last 30 years. So when um, when we had a large Soviet Navy in the 1970s and 80s, they had, you know, five, six, seven hundred ships, more, you know, several hundred submarines at sea. Um, and we had to build, we had to honor that threat. And we had to build a Navy that could counter it, right? So uh, by the late, you know, end of the of the Reagan era, we were approaching, we never quite got to, but we were approaching a 600-ship Navy. And that was Reagan's, you know, bumper sticker at the start of, uh, you know, 1981 when he became the president. So we were building that 600-ship Navy. And then the Soviet Navy, the Soviet Union really collapsed under its own weight. Um, it, it, it did not have the economic power to perpetually drive that large military machine. So, you know, the, the Soviet Navy went home and largely rusted at the pier for at least 10 years uh, until the mid kind of mid 2000s. Uh, so when you don't have a, a pier, uh, a pier adversary, you know, it's very hard to say, OK, well, we need to maintain a 600 ship Navy when the, the bad guys kind of gone away. So the Navy of the 1990s was shrinking pretty rapidly because there wasn't another blue water Navy adversary Navy out there. 
to 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 uh, threaten or or you know to threaten global trade, maritime trade, or to uh, uh, to threaten the United States Navy. Um, and then then uh, in in two thousand one, nine eleven happened, right? And so terrorists attacked the United States. Uh, those terrorists were not based at sea; they were based in in Afghanistan. Um, and we, uh, you know, so we rightly went into Afghanistan and that was a land centric thing. Right. And so the Marine Corps uh, for 20 years was in 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 Afghanistan with the army uh, acting as a second land army. We didn't need as big an amphibious force uh, for that problem. Uh, and then we took on, I would call it a war of choice in Iraq. So Operation yep. Iraqi Freedom 2003 was a I, 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 I would uh, debate anybody who would challenge me on this assertion that it was a huge strategic mistake. It was a, it was an unnecessary war. Uh, and again, that was army centric Marine Corps as a second land army, places like Fallujah doing heroic stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but not a naval problem. Um, and against that back backdrop, both those wars were incredibly expensive. So we weren't we didn't have the money to keep building a, a large Navy at the time. So our Navy kind of went sideways uh, for a very long time, for those 20 years. We weren't building up. Uh, we were struggling to maintain a Navy of 280 to 90, 300 ships. Um, we, we had a couple of failed procurement programs. The Zumwalt class destroyer is one example. The littoral combat ship is another example. Um, and so instead of building 30 or 40 Zumwalts and you know, probably 40, 50, 60 of the littoral combat ships. We ended up not being able to afford many of either. Mm -hmm. uh, and the LCSs didn't end up being as capable as they were supposed to be. Uh, and and so while that was happening, while we're fighting two land wars in, uh, in Southwest Asia, South Asia, uh, the Chinese, uh, largely due to the incredible profits they were making selling products to the United States uh, and, and other countries around the world, uh, they started reaping massive amounts of money into their budget and building a world-class Navy and building a world-class military. So at first they started buying stuff from the Russians, right? So they're buying, you know, Udaloys, not Udaloys, uh, Sovereignty class destroyers and Kilo class submarines and SU-27s. Um, and then they were read as, you know, take them apart, reverse engineer them and start building their own. And they're, they're stealing U.S. technology. Uh, and incorporating so the, the Chinese now have a navy, uh, and they've got a shipbuilding infrastructure. They're putting more ships, more new ships in the in the in the water every year than the United States Navy is, and they're rapidly building towards, you know, a 450 to 500 ship navy. These are not small. As I, I know, you've had Jim Fennell on your show, so your listeners have heard Jim talk, and Jim is an expert on this. They're they're building a massive, you um, know, massive capability. Um, so it's uh, you know we, we've got our, our we've got our work cut out for us uh, to to kind of catch up on the the mistakes that we made where we didn't build enough ships in the in the 2000s and, and even the 2010s uh, and you know now we've got an adversary who has built a, a navy that is a a significant threat and you know and Loria is and and other other you know key members of the Senate and the, and the Congress who are who are focused on these problems or asking tough questions about okay no kidding how do we how do we get after this what kinds of capabilities do we need what's the strategy 
because I got to map capabilities to the strategy. The budget's got to be mapped to the strategy. And you got to convince me that what you're building, CNO, is actually going to get after this problem set. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a huge conundrum. <laughs> I can't I can't can't get it wrong because it's uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of cost uh, if we get it wrong. Uh, for our audience, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Bill Hamlet, who's editor-in-chief for the Naval Service-centric monthly magazine, Proceedings, published by the U.S. Naval Institute. Bill, you were a career naval intelligence officer with time in Moscow as the Naval Attaché. Uh, I'd like you to put on your intel officer hat, uh, especially since the Naval Institute fosters continuous debate on national security issues. Uh, what objectives do you see the Russians pursuing right now as they as they flee Ukraine uh, under the pressure from the Ukrainian forces. And from a maritime perspective, what role can the Navy and Marine Corps play in deterring additional Russian actions around the world? Uh, what would be an effective use of U.S., NATO, and other allied maritime power capabilities vis-a-vis -vis Russia? So I was in Moscow as the naval attaché from 2004 to, to 06. And, and at that time, and, you know, your listeners might remember the fact that, you know, Vladimir Putin was new in his presidency. He was sort of, you know, consolidating power in, in Russia. Russia had gone through these, you know, huge economic perturbations, the 1998, you know, ruble devaluation. Russia was in, uh, was in a very weak state in, in early 2000s. Uh, and, you know, and Putin was kind of a, he was an unknown factor at the time. And, um, you know, President George W. Bush invited Putin to come to his ranch in Crawford, Texas. And he, you know, looked into his soul and looked into his eyes and saw a good soul and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and so my time in Moscow was uh, was highlighted by an overriding uh, strategy, I think, to on the U.S. side to to do more with. Right. And to, um, you know, to incorporate, try to get Russia into the, you know, the community of nations, um, and, and so we, you know, we had a lot of U.S. Navy ship visits to Russian ports while I was there. So I was out in Vladivostok and Petropavlovsk and Murmansk and St. Petersburg for U.S. Navy ship visits. That's a that's a military diplomacy mission. Uh, we did this big exercise, uh, the, you know, U.S. Russian Navy exercise, first one since World War II in the North Sea between two Russian Udaloys and a, and a, a U.S. cruiser, the Way City. Uh, so it was a relatively good time. But. In the background, politically within Russia, you saw the start of what we're seeing now, right? And so Putin is, it was really clamping down on any political dissent. Uh, he had arrested the, the uh, guy named Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was the richest man in Russia in 2003, 2004. You know, had it, he was, it was trumped up charges on tax evasion, right? And then he essentially dissembled uh, Khodorkovsky's company, Yukos Oil Company, and had it sold off to, you know, Putin's allies and buddies in these, you know, midnight auctions, et, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the um, Faustine deal that, that Putin essentially struck with, with uh, the, the oligarchs of Russia at the time was, um, you know, you can keep doing business, you can get rich, um, but I'm your partner. I'm your silent partner. I own half of everything that you own, right? So that's kind of where we are. Um, and, 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 you know, Putin was a KGB officer in the in the Cold War. He was stationed in East Germany when the wall fell down in, you know, 1990, 91. Um, he had to go back, you know, kind of slink back to Russia uh, with his tail between his legs, feeling like that was the worst thing that happened. You know, Putin said this many times, that it, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union was the worst thing in his mind to happen in the 20th century. Uh, the greatest debacle or, or, or tragedy 
tragedy of the 20th century. So he's been trying since then to uh, bring Russia back to uh, its previous eras of greatness and to control what's what we call the near abroad. So Ukraine, uh, Moldova, the Baltic states, uh, the, you know, the Kazakhstan, uh, Azerbaijan, the, you know, the Central uh, Central Asian states. Um, but, you know, one one of the, you know, big problems that Putin had is that, um, it, you know, his country is a kleptocracy. It's this it's just incredible amounts of, um, uh, you know, just graft and corruption. Uh, in the government uh, and across uh, across the country, and so the inform and and he's you know the ir- indisputable dictator, and so in those kinds of countries, when information isn't flowing well up and down the chain of command, when people are afraid of those above them, they tend not to report the bad news, and so nobody wanted to tell Putin that that the uh, the Russian army was really not ready, you know, to invade um, to invade Ukraine, right? The, the army was not you know, cap- as capable as they wanted to report to Putin that they were. And on the intelligence side, you know, the intelligence um, services, the FSB, et cetera, SVR, uh, they were also reporting only the good news out of Ukraine. They weren't reporting the, the, the you know, the, hey, that the Ukrainians are, they're probably tougher than we than we give them credit for. They are probably more nationalistic or, or have more national pride than we give them credit for. So they're not going to just roll over on their backs and say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll be part of Russia again. You know, that that didn't happen. So, you know, Putin wants to control the near abroad. He wants to be a a major power in the United, in, the, in the world. He doesn't he doesn't like having the United States be more powerful than Russia. Um, but he sure has, uh, you know, the, uh, what what he's built in this kleptocratic kleptocratic country, uh, you know, is not well suited uh, to be a world power, and that's what we're seeing right now. And you know, the, I, I, I my hats off. I I salute the Ukrainians for their will to fight. Uh, you know, for their their just you know their strong backbone that they are showing. Uh, that they're not going to roll over to Vladimir Putin. They are going to fight for every inch of their turf. And you know the everything that we're giving them, that the our allies, United States and, uh, and company, are giving them. You know they are turning to tactically, and now they're now they're routing the Russians. What is it like, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred square miles in about you know the last week or so? That's a that's a massive reversal, and you know Putin's Putin's going to struggle with this. Yeah, you you left uh, Moscow as naval attaché in two thousand six. Uh, I got actually got to Helsinki, Finland in two thousand eight, and when I first got there, the Finns were immediately warning me, hey. Got to watch Russia. You got to watch Russia. <laughs> and as you know, and we've just been talking about it, a lot of times it takes a long time for the message out there in the world to sort of have an impact uh, in DOD to get DOD to start looking at a challenge. And uh, that 2009, 2010 time frame, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in trying to uh, revitalize a military strategy to deal with uh, Russia because Russia hadn't really become the problem that it is today <laughs> back then. Right. Lessons learned, lessons learned, right? Uh, yeah, and when and when you think about it, um, you know, at that time, 2008, 9, 10, uh, you know, we're embroiled in Ara- operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? right? So that was the main focus of the Pentagon. We're, we're losing Americans, soldiers, Marines, you know, in both of those uh, ongoing fights. You know, it was just just what a year or two after the surge. You know, General yeah. Petraeus's massive surge to to try to retake the initiative in Iraq. Um, so 
yeah, nobody really wanted to focus on Russia. We can handle that diplomatically was, you know, was, I think, the, the wishful thinking. Uh, and the same thing was true for China. You know, the Chinese were starting to act, uh, you know, you know, feel their their oats uh, and, um, you know, put an emphasis on on their power within the Indo-Pacific and particularly within the South China Sea and and that neighborhood. And the United States, we didn't have the, um, you know, the attention span for for both those problems. And we, uh, you know, we were, I think we were very hopeful that diplomatically and with uh, economic uh, tools that we could get Russia to behave correctly and we get the Chinese to embrace the international order as it stood, you know, and 10 years hence, uh, 12 years, you know, on, we now know uh, that, that both Russia and China, they want the world to look very different than, than the way the United States and our allies want the world to look. And Bill, I'm glad you brought up uh, China. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the China-Taiwan situation. Uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi re- recently visited Taiwan, and the uh, People's Republic of China immediately ordered military demonstrations. The People's Liberation Army uh, carried out those military uh, exercises. I'll, I'll, I'll even refer to them as rehearsals uh, for a potential invasion in and around Taiwan as a show of force, uh, show of force and a statement of displeasure at the far more open stance that American political leaders are taking and in, inciting with Taiwan. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, you hear the State Department uh, talk, and even our national security advisor talk about the fact that we still observe the, the one China policy, uh, but the Chinese uh, Communist Party's interpretation of what the one China policy may have shifted a good bit, and that's where we're running into some uh, some challenges. I've read the articles and proceedings. I know the critical thinking people are putting into their writing as they consider the strategic challenge of China. Uh, both from a deterrence perspective and and if it comes to it with strategies, operational concepts and platforms and weapons may be needed to defeat an attack on China. I don't think anybody's really talking about invading China, mainland China, (laughs) but certainly defending Taiwan. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with some of our fellow naval intelligence officers, senior leaders now, Mike Studeman, Trey Whitworth. Uh, I'm actually going to have Admiral Whitworth, Vice Admiral Whitworth, on the show later this year. And uh, you'd mentioned Jim Fennell. Just a quick correction. He hasn't been on the show yet. But uh, okay. you're, you're going to connect me up with Jim Fennell because I'd love to get him on to talk specifically about uh, the PLA Navy. Uh, these officers have been studying China for years. You served at uh, uh, the Joint Intel Operations Center at, uh, at, at Indo-PACOM. If China chooses to seize Taiwan, whether it's incrementally through blockades that lead to an invasion or, or a flat-out outright invasion designed to seize the whole island all at once, how, how do you see that playing out? I know the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, with whom the Naval Institute has partnered a few times. There are other think tanks as well. They've held a myriad of war games to consider this policy. Uh, I'll I'll refer to it as a wicked problem. What's the the debate happening at the Naval Institute and certainly in the pages of proceedings about the China-Taiwan conundrum? Yeah, so it's definitely a wicked problem. Uh, You know, China would like to win without fighting. Right. Uh, It wants to resolve all the territorial disputes it has. So, you know, think Tibet, think Taiwan. But Taiwan is the central one, right? Uh, For for China to be what it envisions itself to be, it's got to resolve the Taiwan problem. Um, But it wants to win that without fighting. It doesn't want to have a war which would, you know, it would be very costly in terms of economics, in terms of, uh, you know, population and, and personnel, uh, you know, world prestige and all that. So it, what it wants to reabsorb uh, Taiwan without fighting, but it is building a military capability to resolve the problem 
militarily if if its political leaders think that is is required right so it's building this world-class military it's flexing its muscles it's putting its neighbors on notice um and it's hoping that the u.s you know power will diminish so so that you know over time it, it just becomes a fait accompli uh, but time is an issue and uh when you get jim finnell on the show he'll he'll bring this up you know so it 2049 would be the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party and their rise to power in Beijing, right? And and at that centennial celebration, China, the Chinese Communist Party wants to have all these territorial issues resolved. Uh, so, you know, that's not too far off, right? Nope. Also, you got Xi, Xi Jinping is now, you know, kind of made himself emperor for life. And um, he's got this enormous ego. And uh, right now, you know, Taiwan has... It, doesn't seem politically to be moving towards Beijing. I don't think most people in Taiwan really don't want to be part of the People's Republic of China, right? Yep. And so uh, China's power, I think, also in, in many ways is starting to uh, it's starting to peak and it may start to wane, right? So you you look at the the demographic challenges, you know, what's been brought on now of the, as a result of the one child policy for so long. The working age population, the military service age population of China is going to start peak, you know, it is peaking, maybe have, has already peaked and will start to wane. So China may feel that it has to move in this decade or early next decade or else it'll lose that opportunity. And that's that's dangerous. Right. So if you have a political goal, a, a huge uh, you know, front and center political goal and you've built a military to resolve that political goal, and you start to think that your timeline is short, that you can use that tool, then there, there's a there's a uh, a dangerous chance that Xi Jinping might choose to to use that military tool. So in the you know how can that play out? Well, I think right now you know the United States and our allies, we've got to show the Chinese that we have resolve in the in the region, right? We have resolve to. Um, to make sure that that dispute does not get resolved under force or, you know, or, you know, military force by, by the Chinese. Um, we also have to help the Taiwans be prepared to defend themselves. And so what what um, I think has happened, played out in the Ukraine is very applicable. Right. And and so selling some of those small, very capable, uh, very uh, precise we weapon systems uh, to Taiwan so they can make you know, people will call it the porcupine defense. How do you make this small little island of about 25 million people uninvadable uh, to a massive country of 1.4 billion people in this huge military? But, you know, you got to be a porcupine, right? We got to help Taiwan be a porcupine. So how it's going to play out in the next five to 10 years, you know, I, I wish I, I uh, if I knew the answer, I'd, I'd start to make a lot of, uh, you know, big, um, uh, <laughs> you know, plays on wall street right <laughs> but i don't know the answer but i do know that um you know it's got to be a team effort it's got to be something that the united states has got to show resolve and we've got to work with our allies and partners in the region to make sure that the chinese get up every day and say this is not the day this is not the day to you know to military militarily threaten or invade or blockade or quarantine uh taiwan yeah, and uh, I, I would say that uh, your words uh, are very similar to what I've heard uh, recently out of uh, former senior leaders and current, even current senior leaders uh, out leading the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, and frankly, I think uh, Representative Elaine Luria's call to the Navy about force structure design and 
and acquisition of the right platforms. It, it, it's these are tough questions that she's asking, but a lot of these senior leaders are saying, "Hey, by 2027, that's probably about the time frame when the People's Liberation Army is going to be unleashed on Taiwan if they haven't figured out a way to peacefully uh, absorb Taiwan back into the mainland." So. We have all these things sort of coming to a head right now, and the and Proceedings is a great monthly magazine uh, to, to have these debates on the pages of that magazine about these really critical national security issues. Uh, Bill, we don't have too much time left, but I wanted to ask you about emerging technologies and, and, and the articles that have appeared in Proceedings and, and even other periodicals and web-based media platforms. Uh, we see a wide range of technologies that are all starting to mature at the same time or, or getting very close to being mature uh, from, a, from a military uh, application perspective. Hypersonic missile systems, artificial intelligence, unmanned platforms, uh, surface, subsurface, and aviation unmanned platforms, frankly, and, and even directed energy weapons. Uh, what are some of the best articles that you've seen submitted to proceedings that discuss these advanced capabilities? And, and do these breakthroughs, as you think about them as editor-in-chief, do they keep you awake at night like they do to me? Well, we've published a lot on all those topics. Um, so all of those new technologies are discussed in our pages. Um, the, the only one that keeps me up at night, you know, if any of them do, really is is cyber warfare. And I worry that our adversaries can use cyber espionage and cyber weapons to steal our secrets, steal our technology, steal the information about uh, about our people, right? Our our military personnel, and they have done that. You know, there have been the Chinese, you know, ex exfiltrated, uh, I think, information on you know about a million U.S. service members a couple of years ago, right? That was a, a massive data leak or data, you know, uh, theft. Um, and you know, if they're in our technology, if they're in our inside the networks that control our infrastructure, our national infrastructure, um, you know, that we could have a very bad day. So that that's probably the one that that um, you know concerns me the most. I think all the other things, you know, we we have uh, you know hypersonic weapons systems and technology and and R and D programs. In the United States, we've got you know, advanced undersea and, and on the sea and, uh, you know, air unmanned. We've got AI programs and all that stuff. But if the adversaries inside our systems, inside our databases and networks, um, it, it could go bad. It could go bad pretty quickly. And and it has gone bad because, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, the Chinese have stole a lot of our, our, our uh, technology um, because they were inside our networks or our networks are not well defended or, or well secured. Yeah, I think I think I recently read that the FBI is opening up a new counterintelligence case against Chinese espionage efforts about once every 11 hours. <laughs> so it's a huge challenge for America to defend our, yeah. our national security interests uh, from espionage and whatnot. Uh, finally, Bill Hamlet, what, what else would you like to say about the U.S. Naval Institute or the periodical proceedings, uh, which you helm as editor in chief? I'm going to give you the floor for the final comments. Uh, well, I'm incredibly proud to be part of an organization that's been around for almost 150 years and and has played during that, uh, you know, year, uh, century and a half, a real foundational role in making the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, specifically the U.S. Sea Services, better. Uh, we provide an open forum for a lively debate, an important ongoing debate. We do it with a very small staff of about 65 people. All of them are as dedicated to our mission as any sailor or Marine I ever worked with on active duty. Uh, and I invite your listeners to check us out at usni.org. 
Again, usni.org. Uh, John, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's great to be able to talk about the Naval Institute and proceedings and and uh, to just have a good conversation with a former, another former Naval Intelligence officer. We, we old retired guys, right? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, folks, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Bill Hamlet, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. And if you like this show, tune in to Public Policy This Week every Friday morning at 10 a.m. right here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.